Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. There is one phrase, a certain set of words that can bring our house to an utter standstill. When this phrase is uttered, children put down their devices. When this phrase is uttered, parents look up from their books and step away from the desks. When this phrase is uttered, everyone loves to hear it. No words are more effective at waking our house up than these words. There's a new Mark Rober video. For those of you who don't know, and I imagine that's probably many of you, Mark Rober is a scientist who stepped down from his position as an engineer at NASA in order to make YouTube videos. And they're great. Mark Rober videos are appointment watching for us. And you may say, well, I've never heard of this. And Justin, your family is terribly nerdy. I'm not surprised that you all watch NASA engineer YouTube videos. But these videos are works of genius. They're entertaining as well as educational. You may have seen a few of them. If you've seen the videos where somebody constructed an elaborate device that they would set on porches to wait for people to steal it, and then inside of it, it spews glitter everywhere and sprays the sort of smelly spray and then calls the people whose package it is. If you've seen that video, you've seen a Mark Rober video. If you've seen the video in the height of lockdowns in the pandemic where there was a squirrel obstacle course constructed with sort of meticulous engineering, you've seen a Mark Rober video. But maybe you haven't seen any of those. But he does all sorts of insane things. He created a 15-ton pool of jello, which is an engineering feat in and of itself. He also uh, tested out whether sharks could indeed smell blood from a mile away. He makes these videos that are accessible to everyone. He's the reason my 10-year-old son understands buoyancy. He's the reason why I understand buoyancy. His genius is making these incredibly complex ideas simple and accessible. He takes hard science and turns it into experience or experiments that I want to watch and then shows you construction paper diagrams so that you can understand the principles behind them. As we approach the season of Advent, we're going to be unpacking a very difficult idea. Advent is all about the idea of Jesus coming in the flesh as a real human. Jesus didn't just seem human. He didn't just appear to be human. Jesus didn't start to exist the evening of his birth. No, the eternal second person of the Trinity was made flesh in the womb of Mary. This incredibly complex idea about who Jesus was is called the incarnation. It literally means in the flesh. You can, if you kind of know your Western languages, you can hear carne, right? Meat. 
in the flesh, incarnation. And just like Mark Rober makes science understandable by putting it in terms we can understand, John does the same thing for us. See, Matthew and Mark tell us these intricate stories of Jesus' family, of his cousins, of his mom, of Joseph. John doesn't start with that. Mark, skips, Mark just skips it all together and just says, hey, this is what Jesus said when he started preaching. Let's fast forward to there. John does something different. What John does is before he even starts to tell us the story of Jesus, he begins with a prologue to his gospel that gives us the theology of who Jesus was. These 18 verses that are the foundation of what he's going to tell us as he continues on. And so in Jesus, in Advent, we see that God is setting all things right. And so we're going to study what that meant in his first coming, what it means for God to come in the flesh. Because the incarnation of Jesus radically alters the fabric of our world. But even more than that, if you and I truly believe in the incarnation, we have light and life in abundance. And that's our struggle. It is so difficult to wrap our minds around the idea of God wrapped in human flesh that we just sort of punt on that one. We just sort of ignore that one. And when we do that, we lose so many of the benefits that it can teach us. So I'd invite you to stand with me. I'm going to read John 1, 1 through 5. If you have Bibles, you can turn there. If you have phones, surely there's an app for that. Or if not, you can just read along behind me as I read God's word and you listen along as we read the first five verses of John 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. City Church is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. In this first handful of verses that I just read from John, one of the things you should notice is that there's not a lot of complex language there, is there? There's no words that sound sort of strange to our ears. There's no sort of complex sentence structure. All of it just is pretty simple. In fact, it has a sort of staccato simplicity where he just lays out these general ideas. Even in English, each verse just contains one sentence. But John is teaching us with these simple words and these simple sentences something wildly important. Don't let John's straightforward writing lull you into a sense of complacency. Because contained in this passage and, and the passages that follow it that we're going to be studying over this Advent are the very foundations of what we believe about God, who we believe Jesus is, and how these things affect our lives. John teaches us from the very beginning a crucial bit of theology. He starts his gospel the same way that the Old Testament starts. Did you catch that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
So opens the book of Genesis. In the beginning was the word, so says John. What John is doing is he's sort of pulling back the curtain. What we thought was just one person on stage turns out to be more. In the creation, it's not just God who we will know to be God, the Father, as we go on creating the earth. He's doing it in concert with another. In all eternity eternity past, God was coexistent, one God, three persons. That's a little bit difficult for us to wrap our minds around. One God eternally existent as three persons. The way the Westminster Catechism phrases is that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. John shows us this without mincing words and getting too technical. Before creation ever was, the word, which John's going to tell us is Jesus, was there. Before anything, before anything ever existed, Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. Even those simple two sentences tell us incredibly important things to remember when we try to wrap our minds around the Trinity. First, Jesus was God. Jesus wasn't a God. This isn't sort of the, the Greek pantheon system where, where Zeus would find a woman that he liked and, and now we've got Achilles or, or Zeus would find another God that we would like and, and that's how we get, I don't remember my Greek mythology that well to remember who Zeus' son was, but you know, him, her, those people. No, this isn't, this isn't God having children that are separate and no, new creations. No, Jesus was God. No equivocations. No qualifications on that statement. Jesus is God. And at the same time, John separates Jesus from God the Father, showing them to be separate people. Jesus was God, and Jesus was with God. Same time, God eternally exists, one God, in three persons. We call this the doctrine of the Trinity. may have heard of it. And John shows it to us in such simple language. But here's where things get off the rails. Our minds as humans want so badly to be able to have an illustration. I used to have a a student in one of my classes named Larry, who used to always ask the teacher, can you give me a for instance? (laughs) I don't care whether it was math or, or science, whatever it was. Larry always wanted a for instance. And all of us do. We want sort of ways to wrap our minds around things. And throughout history, there have been people who have attempted to come up with clever, natural ways to explain this idea that one God in three persons. St. Patrick famously described God as being like an Irish three-leaf clover. Cute. Except it's heresy. It's heresy because God isn't three parts, you can't sort of pull God apart. It's one God. Or maybe you've heard the Trinity explained like ice, water, and steam. They're all the same thing, but they sort of exist differently. Clever. Also heresy. If you haven't seen, there's an internet cartoon called St. Patrick's Bad Illustrations in which St. Patrick tries to explain the Trinity to a couple of peasants 
who happen to know their Nicene Creed and continue to tell St. Patrick why he is wrong and why these illustrations just don't cut it. But to be honest, one of the reasons that we do things like say the Nicene Creed here at City Church is so that those words are scratched on our hearts and our minds. Because no illustration can ever capture the beauty that is the Trinity of God. Our faith is bound up in the Bible and the historic creeds and confessions of the church serve as guide rails for understanding what that Bible says. Look, you might not be able to give some extremely good illustration of the Trinity, but I'll tell you what, by the end of this month, I bet you that this phrase is going to stick with you. Very God of very God. Did you catch it when we said that in the Nicene Creed? It's kind of a strange phrase. And yet you're going to remember it. I can't forget it. And when we say that, it begins to stick in our head. John wants us, as we begin to understand the story of Jesus, begin to understand the story of Jesus coming, to have our heads in the right place. Jesus is God. And he is with God. One and another. Unity and Trinity. Our understanding of who Jesus was shapes how we worship and how we live, even when we don't sort of understand all the implications of that. John says Jesus was God and Jesus was with God, but he moves on from that to begin to show us how that interacts, how God interacts with the world itself. Verse three shows us that Jesus is the creator along with the father. Jesus was not the first of the created things. He is the very creator himself. And just like Moses point in Genesis, John is not trying to give us a science lesson here. He isn't trying to get bogged down on the mechanics of how God created the world, not the how. And I'm not going to do that either. What John is trying to show us is what's meaningful about Jesus being the creator of all things. Jesus being the creator of the world has a number of implications. And the first is that Jesus, as the good creator God, created a world that is good. In our telling of the story of God, we oftentimes begin with sin. We oftentimes begin with this idea that this world is broken all around us. And on the one hand, it's easy to see why we might do that. Pointing out the brokenness of the world around us is pretty easy just gesture broadly. But when we start our story of God there, we miss the fact that John and Moses were trying to tell us God created the world good. Both of our in the beginning stories begin with a good God who creates a good world where the love that exist inside the Trinity can spill out in it all of its glory into this new world. And not only is the world good, since all of these things were made by the good God, Jesus, but Jesus, because he is the creator, is Lord of all. He is over all. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. I don't know about you, but Advent and Christmas are my favorite time of the year, especially here at City Church. It always looks gorgeous in here and out there. It's awesome. I love it. I mean, look, Easter's good. 
You get to kind of party at Easter, celebrate the resurrection. Great. Lent is good because you all know deep down inside, I'm still an emo kid. But Advent, Advent is where it at. I mean, the songs of Advent are absolutely the best. Joy to the world is an absolute banger. Hark the herald angels sing goes so hard. Sure, you can miss me with Silent Night and Mary, did you know? But O Come, O Manuel, so good. So good. And one of the things that we love about all of these Christmas carols, one of the things that gets us excited about them is that they are royal anthems. They are anthems celebrating a king. Jesus is king. And so many of us need to hear that. I need to be reminded of that. And so the heralds, not just human heralds, no, angel heralds proclaim the birth of this newborn king, the king who made all things visible and is invisible, the one who shaped the Alaskan wilderness, the one who cupped the sands onto the beaches to create Pinellas County, the one who plunged the Marianas Trench down into the waters, the one that pulled up Everest like clay on a wheel, that king has arrived. He is here. And this is how you know you'll find him. This is how you know you have found this creator king. Go look for the one wrapped in simple swaddling cloths. Look for the one laying in a feeding trough. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, who will reign forever and ever is in rags and a stable that's where you can find him. The creator has entered the world, not by bursting through the heavens, spoiler alert, he'll do that later, but by coming into this world in the beautiful, messy, and miraculous way that all of us came into this world through human birth. The creator has become a part of the created world, and he comes on purpose. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't something he decided to try out. So I've got to tell you a funny, a funny story, especially about um, the title of this sermon series. So as I prepared for this and as I anticipated what we were going to think about and dwell on through this time of Advent, I thought, ah, yes, John chapter one, John, a good Jewish boy. There's echoes of wisdom literature all throughout John chapter one. Ah, this will be a good way to cap off this entire year that we've spent in the wisdom literature of the Bible. This is clever, Justin, you're so good. Then I opened up my favorite commentary on the book of John by this Dutch fellow named Herman Ritterboss. And I get about three pages in. And Herman Ritterboss says, To limit this passage to being a reflection of John showing Jesus as the wisdom of God undersells the entire thing. To limit this passage to being about Jesus being the wisdom of God ignores who Jesus really is and who John is showing him to be. Great. Superb. 
Yes, Jesus is the wisdom of God. And yes, not only do we see Genesis 1 reflected in this passage, we do very clearly see Proverbs 8. But Jesus is so much more than just the wisdom of God made flesh. So much more. And that's what John wants to show us. What he has done in the past in creation. Who he is a part of the triune God. But even more than that, what he came to do. He came to give you and I light and life. Don't you love that line in the song? Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. While John is going to leave this sort of title of Jesus, the word, behind after the end of chapter one, this idea of light and life is going to track through the entire gospel of John. Remember when Jesus comes to Nicodemus? What is he telling Nicodemus about? Life, eternal life. When Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, what is he talking to her about? Life. When Jesus celebrates Hanukkah with his disciples, he stands up and says, you see these lights? You were at the festival of lights? Adam Sandler jokes aside, I am the light of the world. Light and life are going to follow and flow out of Jesus throughout the gospel of John. He is so full of light and life that it spills into the world and spreads like a, well, it spreads like a, like a virus, except the good kind. This is the fullness of life that we were created for. It is what Jesus will call the life of the age to come. In our Bibles, we often read it in English as eternal life, but that's not quite the right sense because most of us think that eternal life is something that we get later. First, you got to die, then you'll get eternal life. But that's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what John is relating to us. The life of the ages, eternal life, is the life that we were always meant to live. It was the life that the good creator God intended for us before sin entered the world. And it's the life that we as Christians get to experience now. Life as we were meant to live, it doesn't happen later. We begin to act out that life now. And that's the tension of Advent. That's the tension that we celebrate in this moment. Jesus has come. Jesus will come again. And as we live in between those two moments, we wait. I loved the Advent reflection that that Sarah and Nate read for us earlier this morning that compared this time between the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and his return to the idea and the thing that most of us know well of pregnancy. We know life is coming, but life is already here. And just like the little kicks and tumbles of a baby in the womb can fill us with joy, they are nothing in comparison to that first smile. They pale up against those first set of giggles. Advent is about waiting, but it's also about anticipation. Jesus has brought life to us. He has given light by which we can see everything around us. And just like pregnancy forces you to reorient your schedule and your life, so does Advent. 
the light has dawned and will one day burn as the noonday sun that never sets. And as much as the darkness is going to try and eclipse it, that eclipse is only an opportunity for the true beauty of the light to be seen in its fullness because darkness cannot overcome this creator God. Darkness will never blot out the light of the world. Friends, I know, I know that Advent for many of you can be tough. Advent at times can blow open the stuffed closet door of all of our family brokenness. It can fill our our schedules with things to sap life from us. I know that there are many of you who have so much more work and burden because of work during this time than any other time of the year. But beloved, the darkness will not, the darkness cannot overcome the light of the world. Christ has come. And as sure as he came the first time, he will come again. And our job is to wait in anticipation. And as we wait, we party. We celebrate. Jesus is king. God has come in the flesh and darkness did not overcome him. That is worth celebrating. So this month, this month that we spend waiting, anticipating, let's make this month joyful. Let's fill this month with awe, with wonder, with celebrating with the fellow servants of the King, the eternal God in the skin, the creator God in a cradle, the light of the world wrapped in cloth. That is worth celebrating. Let's pray.